You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Lisa Keefe, editor in chief of Meeting Place and Alt Meat. Welcome to this month's Meeting Pod episode dedicated to the meat alternatives market. Globally, the most successful food tech advancements seem to emerge from partnerships that combine academic research, manufacturing practicality, and government support. In the States, one of the top such facilities is the North Carolina Food Innovation Lab in Kannapolis, outside of Charlotte. The lab is dedicated to supporting plant-based food innovations of all kinds. The goal is to help grow North Carolina's agriculture and food industries, And along the way, the lab is one of the places pushing the global envelope on plant-based meat alternative technology. Lab director Bill A. Moodis spoke with Altmeat about his take on the state of plant-based proteins now, and he had some wise advice for entrepreneurs who want to still be in the game by 2028. We were at the Bridge to Food conference in Chicago at the time, so you might hear some conversation in the background. How has your business sort of changed and shifted over, say, the last three years? It's, everything has shifted. Yeah. Tell me how that has yeah. affected you. I think what we're starting to see now is that people are taking a little bit of a step back and saying, okay, let's improve upon some of these products. And sometimes that's for the good and sometimes it's for the bad because oftentimes it'll be the inventor or the developer that says, well, I really don't like the wrinkle that I see in my TVP. Can we get rid of that? Or this piece has got a little tail on it. We try to help them to understand it's a little bit of the nature of the beast with using extrusion. And, you know, the consumer doesn't care if you've got a little wrinkle, as long as you've got it covered with some kind of really good batter breading system, which is another shift we have seen is people are coming back and saying, look, you know, we were in that foot race to get everything out into the market. We would just cover it, whatever the traditional batter breading coating systems were. We didn't pay attention to how they played nicely with our marinade or how they played nicely with the substrate we had extruded underneath it. So people are now starting to come back and say, okay, let's take a little bit closer look at these batter systems and breading systems, get them a little bit thinner on the product. You know, a lot of the products that are out there today, they're decent tasting products, but when you start looking at the ratio of batters and breadings on them, it's a little bit, frankly, a little bit over the top. More than is necessary. Right, right. So, and then I think the other thing we're seeing is, as I said, people are starting to realize that with the challenges we've had with supply chain over the last few years, they've got to be two or three deep in the suppliers they're working with. So we may be working with the gold standard supplier, but then we're also looking at the second, third tier suppliers of how that product performs in their ultimate finished product. You have to have a deeper bench. Exactly. So early on, it seems as if a number of these companies of all sorts of foodstuffs, they sort of put the minimum viable product out into the marketplace and do it faster, be first mover. And that that seemed to work for a very short period of time overall, and now it seems to have shifted. So explain a little bit about the mechanics of that for people who might be listening and thinking, what is going on? Yeah, I think when you go back and kind of analyze this and look at what happened, we were kind of in that Harvard Business School, Wharton Business School theory of first to market's going to win. So everybody was in the foot race to get the first burger out of the first nugget out of the first cutlet out, whatever we're in the foot race for. 
because they thought they'd have first mover advantage. The challenge was that we, we launched those products, and I'm certainly one of those that doesn't believe a product has to be perfect before you launch it. Go back and fix it later as you get more voice of the consumer back into you. But I think, so what happened was we did. We got a lot of bad products out there to begin with, turned off the consumer from the taste, texture, appearance perspective, and that's been a negative to a lot of these consumers. They're confused, and they're a little bit fatigued. You know, they're seeing so many different nuggets, and when you put 10 of them down on a table and taste them all, one after the other, there are very marked differences between them. And I got some people probably like a little bit softer texture product. Other people want that more firm, or they want that striation when we peel them apart. But I think it was that first mover advantage that we teach in the business schools that probably maybe hurt this industry a little bit. People took it a little too much to heart, perhaps. Yeah, and I think product developers now are frankly just now learning how to make a better product. You know, these products were really quite new, even just five years ago. And it's not something we teach, certainly in the graduate school. We don't teach at the undergrad level at all of how to work with these types of products. So, you know, their first products came out. They went to some cookbook or even a meat course and said, okay, what do we use for marinades in a chicken? Or what do we use for marinades in a burger type product? They paid no attention to what they're really working with, how to mask flavors, how to improve texture. But I think over the last five years now, our product developers are all getting a lot more experience with these products, and now they know how to go back and, and make little tweaks and adjustments to improve the quality of the products. Okay, now that food developers are coming back and maybe approaching this with a little bit more intent other than just fast to market, do you deal with the marketing side of that at all in terms of how do you get the consumer to come back and go, you know, okay, we'll give you another shot? Yeah. We've tried going back for a while. We actually had a person on our staff that would do market intelligence work for our customers so they at least knew what they were up against and try to characterize some of the competitive products they were facing and we found that you know again it's, it's very similar to what i said about being first to market everybody was in such a hurry they didn't take the time to really realize or recognize who they were up against and what they were trying to do but i think as we've expressed to them observational learning from the consumers who are buying your product, ask them what they like about it, what they don't like about it, bring that back, and then either working with us or working with your own product development teams, improve upon your product. Okay. How has the challenges that your clients are bringing to you, how has that shifted over the last couple of years? <laughs> One of the biggest challenges we've had, and it was rather surprising maybe to us when it first started happening, was that let's say somebody was using a pea protein from company X, mm-hmm. and they were having trouble getting that protein on a regular basis, or they had to buy such huge quantities that a startup can't afford to get that kind of volume, so they'd want to go to company Y or Z. And we'd start bringing them back into our development lab, whether we were doing an extruded product or even just a formulated product and baked type product we were seeing huge differences in the functional properties of those proteins. Even though somebody was selling a protein, pea protein concentrate or pea protein isolate, we were seeing huge differences in how these products would come together and Even perform. Even if it's like the same ingredient, the exact same process. Labeled is the same, exactly. The label's the same. That's interesting. So, yeah. I mean, what accounts for that? You know, the different methods of manufacture, the different methods they use for alkalization of the protein when they're manufacturing or acidification steps, even dryers will make a difference of the quality of the product. And I think we had Gia talking here yesterday about some of the things they've been doing, trying to learn how their spray dryers are even influencing the ultimate functional properties of the proteins. And that was some of the first work I've seen from an equipment manufacturer, you know, is getting to the heart of the problem. 
Well, that's interesting. It seems as if everybody's kind of trying to figure this out. These are truly new uses for some of these protein products, some of these isolates. Perhaps they were developed at an earlier time for another purpose. Yeah, like nutritional beverages. Nutritional beverage, okay. Where solubility was important, but you didn't have to rely upon the water binding, the oil binding, the emulsification even in some cases when we're doing these in extruders or even a formulated meat, in quotes. (laughs) Meat, in quotes. Has the advice that you are giving to the clients, has that shifted along with these challenges? What, what are you telling them now that, you know, now that you know more than you did a few years ago? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because of what we've been seeing with the economy, we started maybe seeing this even before the economy started going into the negative zones and everybody having some problems selling these products. We saw some early warning signs during the pandemic about the supply chain situations So we were already advising our customers at that point in time, find that secondary, third, and maybe fourth layer ingredient supplier. Packaging became a real bear for everybody. Protein prices remain considerably higher than probably they should have been, mainly because of supply and demand. So you you can't blame a company because supply and demand to keep their prices high, but minimum order requirements were staying very high. So one of the first things we do anytime we get a new customer, especially an entrepreneur, is we say, you do realize the failure rate of new products is 99%, okay? And if you only have one product you're going to market with, you better start thinking about that. So what are your other products that you want to launch now? What are the other products you want to launch in two years, three years down the road? Because it makes them much more attractive to venture capital companies. Okay. So that's how we started. Now, over the past year, we've also started noticing now with the challenges of finding funding and the decreased interest in some of these products, I shouldn't say it's a decreased interest. I think it's just a reshuffling of the deck a little bit. Okay. We've reached the end of that first product S curve where you know things come out logarithmically growing and then they plateau off. You've got to get the next launch. And we're trying to emphasize that with our customers. Be ready for that next launch that you have to make to maintain the momentum that you've gained with your customers. Mm-hmm. So one of the other steps that we've taken is we've said, look, develop a game board. While you're developing your pitch deck to go out for money, already start developing a game board. If you had all the money you could possibly use for this business, who would be on that game board for acquisition and why? What would they bring to the table? What would you bring to the table after you acquired them? And by the same token, we also say consider partnering in the same vein. So are you talking about the, the small guys, the mid-sized even guys? Even the little guys. Even the little guys you're talking about, maybe they want to go acquire well, or another be acquired. little guy. Or so, be acquired by. So, okay. so we kind of play this game both ways. We go down the path of, okay, if you want to be acquired, who would you want to acquire you and why? But by the same token, we're also saying, okay, if you want to partner with somebody that's got similar interests, focus on you, growing the business is what we're supposed to be doing. It's called survival. Who would you partner with? What would you bring to the table for them? What could they bring to the table for you? Start looking for where the synergies are, especially in this time of where we're seeing you know, packaging companies are requiring you to buy multiple hundreds of thousands of units, and you probably only need 50,000 units. You know, they're saying, well, we can't deal with you unless you're buying a half million units. You can't form a co-op legally, but you can do a partnership to form a co-op and start using buying power together. Same way with co-manufacturing. Let's take a quick break for a word from the sponsor of today's episode, Harpak Alma Packaging. Today's podcast is brought to you by Harpak Alma. Our full-service solutions for Altmade address installation, training, spare parts, service, and customer support. While capabilities span robotics and automation, thermoforming, tray sealing, filling, flow pack, stretch, blister, skin pack, and vacuum. 
We aim to provide every solution with smart connectivity to reduce solution complexity and cost while realizing better quality and throughput. We focus on lowering your total cost of ownership and offering the most reliable systems available while addressing all your packaging issues. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, instead of going in and buying one or two days of manufacturing a month, come together with somebody that's doing a very similar product to you so that the configuration on the screws of the extruder are already set up, probably running the same thing you are, mm-hmm. buy a week, buy two weeks, whatever. By doing that, you reduce your cost, but you also gain access to that technology you need to manufacture your product. Now, interestingly, when you're talking about a partnership, I mean, it's like a marriage. So it's not so simple as, you know, well, I think these guys have got a great idea. Let's go partner with them because personalities clash or the due diligence turns up some stuff because you need to do the due diligence. The financial due diligence, maybe you turn up a few things that you didn't like to see. So then how do you counsel people through that? Is it easier to do a partnership than it is to do a pitch to VCs and get the money that way? I think it's a little bit of the same work, but I think by doing a partnership, you're staying focused on what your goal is and that's growth of your company. You're not worried about survival. I think what happens is when we start getting desperate looking for funds, we take our eye totally off the ball, and while we're chasing that money, we're now in a mode of where we're hemorrhaging badly and not seeing the growth that we should be seeing while we're still trying to find money. You're right. Partnerships do require a lot of due diligence. As I tell people, every marriage can end in a divorce, ultimately. So make sure that you've got the proper escape clauses in there. In this case, we're not talking about getting married for years to come. We're talking about get us through this period right now where the seas are really rough and we're in the middle of a storm. Let's figure out how to get through this storm. You can always worry about the escape clauses later. You can set it up the agreement that, look, we'll try this for six months. It doesn't work. But by forming a partnership, you start bringing to the table or they start bringing to the table maybe resources that you didn't have or you can share on marketing expenses. You can share on packaging buying or ingredient buying or co-manufacture timing. There's so many things that you can come together with that actually ultimately will save both companies money and give them the leverage they need to go compete against the bigger players in this industry. Okay. Could you possibly give us an example maybe of a partnership that maybe you played matchmaker for <laughs> and, and how this sort of played out? I can't name names, but we've been working with a couple of people right now, especially on proteins. And so we've worked with a alternate meat manufacturer, marketer, that you know we had screened a number of proteins for this company to, to improve the quality of the product. And we found one company we really liked, and we knew certain functional properties that we needed from that protein. So we went back to the protein manufacturer and said, guys, you know, we have taken your product apart. We know what you're doing, what you're not doing, and here's what we think we need to do to make this product better so we can produce a high-quality product at the end of the day. And so we formed a little bit of a partnership that way, and then, you know, as things got a little bit tight, that company is really a little bit more willing to sell more inventory to our customer to make sure they had inventory on the floor to keep their production running. I see. So then the interesting thing is, I think when I think of business partnerships, and I think of them lasting for a very long time, you seem to be counseling people, this is not necessarily for, you're dating, maybe you're dating seriously, this is yes. not forever. Right. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do we batten down the hatches during this storm right now. Very interesting. So that's different from what it was a few years ago. Oh yeah, for sure. I think we're in such a different age of doing business today. Things move at a much faster pace. The old adage of, well, let's form a joint venture, a joint alliance for whatever period of time. I think that is fine for the big companies because they have lawyers on top of lawyers. They can weather through a lot of different things. I think right now we've got 
a lot of small companies that are just fighting for growth and survival. And so they need to figure out how do they work together. It's, you know, two brains are always better than one. It's that old adage, and it really does work. As long as people are interested in listening to what, <laughs> and sometimes people aren't. It's interesting. This entrepreneurs today, I think, are really different maybe than a generation ago. The young people that we're working with today, even the millennials and younger than the millennials, take the philosophy of, I'm going to make hay while I can, and if it doesn't work out, I'll go on to do something else. So they're more willing maybe to take some of those risks than a conservative big company would be. So as a result of that, they don't worry about if you and I are competitors, but we can find out a way to get some corners on the market that we both will enjoy for growth for a while. Let's go do it. A lot of people talk about the innovation coming out of Israel. Because it's interesting, if you look at Israeli technology, a lot of that technology is shared across multiple companies. It's developed in the universities or the, or the big tech centers within Israel, the government labs. But in the end of the day, a lot of them use the same technology. They just put their spin on it and, and end up with a really attractive product that's enjoyed by consumers and they get repeat sales. Okay. I think we're starting to learn that in other geographies of the world. now. That's an interesting take on that. You mentioned Israel and a number of other countries. There's more government support in this innovation area, and there's been a lot of push in the United States in particular for more government support. Uh, where do you fall on that? Do you feel as an observer that maybe the government is better off not getting involved and that the partnerships and things, they, they should try to work things out themselves, or are you also advocating for more government support? I'm advocating for more government support through the funding ranks, grants and that type of thing, more so than some of the things we're seeing from major cities right now that are trying to implement laws where meat is banned in the city and you have to go to plant-based. I think you know, it's, it's kind of like gun control and vaccinations. We see what the public does when you try to mandate something. True. We don't need government interference, frankly, from in that manner. I do think that we need to loosen up some USDA funds, put some things in the farm bill here in the U.S. that will enable us to get down the path of promoting healthier eating, not just plant-based, but healthier eating in general. As a result of that, the plant-based area and self-cultivated and everything else will benefit. We have got to train more food scientists in this country. It's one of the elephants in the room that we don't discuss often enough, but we turn out roughly a 1,000 food scientists a year with a bachelor's degree and several hundred master's PhD students. The challenge is we don't need hundreds. We need thousands. Okay. And we need multiple thousands for this next generation of technology we're working with to develop the next foods for the next 50 years. So many things. We need teachers. We need food scientists. Yes. We need nurses. We need. It's an endless thing. And you know, not just food scientists, we need good manufacturing engineers too. The technology is moving so fast, and we've, we've talked about artificial intelligence, machine learning, mm -hmm. and what that's bringing to the industry. Well, that's fine, but we're still lacking even on some of the technology for sensors that can pick up and gather that data and then get it into the computer so we can translate it further. Absolutely. So what do you predict in the next two to three years for the Food Innovation Lab, for this part of the industry? Do you think the waters will get smoother or do you think that it's hard to say when this period is going to end yet? Yeah, I think we're in for another six months of rough water. I think that when we get start getting closer probably to the next presidential election, things might smooth out a little bit. The economy will, by virtue of just cyclical nature of economies, will start turning back. But we are, from the perspective of what we're doing in the alternative meat area, we're already seeing on the horizon where we'll be working probably more with not just plant-based, but we'll be start, starting to do some work with animal-based products, hybrid-type products. 
and that'll be a, another game changer. You know, extrusions heavily relied upon today. We know that extrusion is a very expensive technology for capital to get it on the ground. It's not the easiest manufacturing technologies, but there are some new things out there also that we're seeing come along, which will change that paradigm a little bit. So I think we'll see some of that. We've actually started our first project even with dried animal protein being mixed with a plant-based protein and seeing some very interesting results already in the preliminary work we've been doing. That's interesting. Oh, I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, the other thing that we see over the next, at least probably in the near term, two years, is that people are going back now and saying, okay, we've had this product in the market and we need the second, third generations. What do we do to improve them? So I, I mentioned earlier the batters and breadings were, you know, six months ago, even a year ago, maybe only 20, 25% of all the chicken nuggets in the market, the all chicken nuggets, had directions on how to air fry them. Well, air fryers have emerged over the past two years. Oh, yeah. And it's probably the best way, frankly, to cook these products right now if you don't want to fry them. So little things like that are going to improve the products. The consumer will have much more acceptance. And we have to educate the consumer. We need to start educating them about the environment. We need to start educating them about healthy eating. We need to start educating that, you know, cell cultured, your cultivated meats are not going to be frankenfood, but they are going to be healthy and you should be looking at how do you accept these into your diet. Exactly. So, and what is on the docket for the Food Innovation Lab in particular for the foreseeable future? We're starting to look at where we go with phase two of our facility. When we built the facility four years ago, we had visited shortly the possibility of putting in fermentation capacity mm-hmm. into our facility. We had opted not to because we needed more square footage and there's a lot more complexity, of course, with fermentation. But right now we have interest in our the North Carolina General Assembly to begin looking at food fermentation. In fact, I'm in a meeting next week where we're already starting to explore this a little bit deeper. I'm in the midst of writing a white paper. Will the next generation be fermentation for NC Phil? I can't say for certain yet, but it certainly looks like it's coming on the horizon very quickly. We've got some really good partnerships with Bueller and Novozymes and a few other companies that we want to find time to go back to the R part of the R&D a little bit. With their help, we're finding time and people that we can actually get back to some of the R part and improve these tech manufacturing technologies in particular, get sensors into the extruders, get the information out of it so we can start utilizing artificial intelligence, machine learning, and improve upon the quality of the products being produced. Okay, that's interesting. So if anybody wants to like look further into the North Carolina Food Innovation Lab, then what is your URL? Where, where it's can they uh, www.ncfil.org. Dot org. Okay. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Lisa. Appreciate it. Bill Amudis and the North Carolina Food Innovation Lab are pushing the boundaries of Altmeat technology while guiding entrepreneurs through rough economic waters. Our thanks to Bill for sharing his expertise with us today. You can read more about the North Carolina Food Innovation Lab on our website at alt-meat.net. You can also go there to register at no charge for our daily newsletter, bi-monthly print magazine, and monthly podcast dedicated to the business of alternative meats. Remember to tune in on Mondays to get the inside track on the people and the processes that drive the protein industry. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Meeting Place and Alt Meat magazines on social media, and be sure to visit our websites at meetingplace.com and altmeat.net.